Welcome back to your home inspector training. You're listening to the segment on radon. Welcome back to your home inspector training. My name is Garth Haslam. Subject today, we're going to be talking about radon. Now, that's one of those um, big newspaper articles uh, that you quite often get associated with home inspectors. Um, to me, and I will explain why I have this opinion, but to me, it is less of an issue than a number of other items that uh, that get much fewer headlines, i.e. carbon monoxide. But we're going to talk about that. Uh, still, regardless of whether it is or is not a big or or uh, or tremendous or whatever size issue it is, um, you've still got to be knowledgeable about radon so that you can answer questions and guide your clients in a way that uh, serves them and um, helps them to know what the relative risks are. So uh, let me begin this one perhaps by telling you a story. You know, quite often you will get a client that is maybe they've read a headline in one category or another. I had one client who um, who was very concerned about, for example, polybutylene plumbing, and he really didn't know much about uh, a lot of the other so-called fear factor items, the lead, the, the radon, the asbestos, etc. Um, but they uh, they were very much concerned about polybutylene. So, and in that particular case, I didn't have them there with me, so I wasn't able to play show and tell, and I got that 3 a.m. phone call later saying, well, you did a great inspection, but you failed to tell me about the polybutylene. Same sort of thing can happen with other subjects, and in many cases, it is radon. Sometimes it'll be mold, but quite often it'll be radon. So, I'm going to arm you with, uh, with that sort of information. I had one of those sorts of clients. Uh, this guy was an airline pilot, and he was concerned about radon. Um, I talked to him about uh, about the radon. You know, he'd under he'd heard that the radon concentration, you know, could kill you, etc. And I said that there were risks that EPA uh, had identified, and we're going to talk about those later on in this segment. But what I mentioned to him, and I gained this information actually uh, from back in the days when I used to be the guy that EPA hired. At least I worked for a consulting engineering firm that, that uh, you know, it all trickled down to me, some of it. Uh, to do the computer models to identify what the relative risks were associated with different radiation doses and pathways and methods. So what I had learned while I was there is that a single cross-country flight uh, from, say, L.A. to New York is going to result in as much radiation dose to the pilot and all of the passengers as if um, you were living 24-7 in a, uh, a room at 10 picocuries per liter. We're going to talk about what the uh, 10 means. We're going to talk about what background means. Maybe I'll go there just briefly. Background concentrations, meaning what you are breathing probably right now, unless you're in an elevated concentration uh, sort of an area, um, which you know might be a basement or whatever we're going to talk about that too 
But background concentrations, meaning natural air for most of the United States, most of the country, are one to two picocuries per liter. And we're not going to go over what a picocurie is. It's just a unit of measurement. But let's suffice to say that it's a pretty small number. Um, so I talked. I told him that I had learned as a um, radiation engineering consultant um, that I'd learned that a single cross-country flight will give you as much radiation dose as living 24-7 in a... Um, in a room filled with 10 picocuries per liter of of uh, radon. So this guy had spent who knows how much of his life being fearful of radon when he realized at that moment that he should have perhaps been more fearful of the profession that he had chosen. Now, if you're an airline pilot and you're making quite a bit of money per year, you don't necessarily just change professions. But it gave this guy... Um, a much better idea of the relative risks associated with radon versus some other activities that are considered to be normal and safe. I think if you would have asked him, you know, if his if his chosen profession was safe, he would have said absolutely. Um, but then you tell him that his doses are probably, I don't know, a hundred times as high as they would ever be uh, from radon. Um, I certainly had his eyebrows raised at that point. So uh, we'll back up a little bit and just uh, just go through some first base, second base type stuff. Background levels, as I mentioned, are one to two picocuries per liter. Um, there is no place on earth that you can go and not be breathing radon. Um, there is no place where there is zero radon other than outer space. It used to be, back in the day, I'm going to say back in the 80s, uh, early 90s, that EPA had what they called uh, three action levels. Uh, action level one was four picocuries per liter. And again, we're comparing this to background, which is one to two picocuries per liter. So at four, according to EPA at the time, they basically says if your number is four or greater, then you should consider taking action. Um, then they said, okay, at ten, if you've uh, if you got radon levels that are that high, then you should consider taking action a little sooner. And then they had a third action level, which was twenty-five, and they said if you've got radon levels that are that high, then you should consider taking actions even sooner. It's kind of like, you know, do it in five years, do it in one year, or do it right now, is how one might uh, interpret the, those sets of, uh, of numbers. But, of course, um, we're Americans. We like it easy. You know, three choices is uh, three action levels, three steps. doesn't give anybody any uh, feeling of safe versus unsafe. So at one point, EPA decided to just dump the latter two numbers, and they basically chose the four. And uh, at that point, anything less than four was con considered to be acceptable, and anything more than four, they recommended uh, action steps to reduce the level, uh, also known as remediation. So um, EPA... Let's go here. The uh, the radon was radon was originally discovered not that long ago. I want to say it was uh, uh, back in 
about the time, well, it was about the time that they start that they discovered how to do um, radiation measurements. So basically, uh, at one point in time, there was a nuclear facility, and they uh, they wanted to make sure that nobody was walking out the door with any radioactive materials in their pockets. You know, keep keep the terrorists down, et cetera. Wanted to make sure nobody could build a nuclear bomb in their basement. So, uh, day one, that they install these Geiger counters to, you know, to make sure that the the employees were going through and that they weren't radioactive. Um, everybody goes home at the end of the day. It's five o'clock, and as people are filing through these uh, human-sized Geiger counters, one of them goes off. And so this guy was an accountant. You know, they looked at him, and he didn't have any radiation, you know, radioactive rocks on him. Uh, there was nothing that would have indicated that he, you know, should have tested the Geiger counter. But it, it went off uh, regularly, consistently, as he was going through. So then they tested, of course, his desk and et cetera. They didn't find anything there. Being an accountant, he had no access to anything that could have been remotely uh, a problem. So they went to his home, and what they found was that he had elevated radon concentrations in his basement. And, and so the, uh, the radon there was getting on his clothes enough to set off the Geiger counters at work. It was at that point that radon was discovered as a... Uh, as a material that uh, was radioactive and that uh, and that was found in the human environment. So uh, now you you get uh, consultants and engineers and government workers, et cetera. They're saying, "All right, you know we've uh, we've defined that a, that we have a le- level that we consider to be safe, and that level is now four picocuries per liter." Um, to get to that number, they basically ran some computer models or EPA hired uh, consulting engineering firms, which in turn hired guys like me to run some computer models. And uh, just to give you some background on what that looks like, um, we had we knew that EPA was being reviewed by a number of environmental groups who, they were going to look at uh, the assumptions that we made, and if they didn't think that the assumptions were, uh, it was called conservative enough, meaning that if they didn't think that we were being careful enough in our assumptions, then they would basically call the whole call bunk on the whole thing, and then EPA's money was wasted, the consulting firm looks bad, and then I get fired. So you learn to uh, make what are called very conservative assumptions. For example... Um, boy, the stories I could tell you. Let's let's go there. Um, one of the assessments that I did was we had, uh, and this was down in Louisiana, we had oil that was being pumped out of the ground, and uh, with it came a certain amount of saline water, and with some of the saline water came a certain amount of radioactivity. So the oil is um, is removed and sent off to um, to be refined and you know to go to people's cars, gas stations, etc. 
Then the next question is, what are you going to do with this oily, saline, radioactive water? So my first thought as the new engineer there was, well, let's put it back where we got it from. And that was an absolutely not response because doing so would have been polluting the groundwater. So that option was never out or was never available. That was the last option as far as um, the regulators, et cetera, were concerned. The next option is, well, you know, it's saline water. We could put it in the ocean. But again, uh, now you're adding an oily radioactive material to the ocean, and that's going to be, of course, that's polluting, and we can't do that. So the next option was um, what was called land application. With land application, basically what we're doing is we're taking this radioactive water that, again, has a uh, an oil sheen to it, some level of oil, and we're just applying it to a field. Uh, then we are assuming that there is a farmer who is farming that field, and we assumed that he was planting cabbage. Why did we pick cabbage? Because cabbage is uh, the plant that is most likely to soak up any radioactivity. You know, for example, if you were to plant carrots or tomatoes or oranges or whatever it is, the radioactivity doesn't get moved up into the uh, plant and it doesn't move into the fruit. But by contrast, cabbage does. It pulls up all that radioactivity. So we picked that plant. Then we assumed that Farmer Joe was eating cabbage and that he was basically living on the cabbage that he um, had in his field. We assumed that he was eating two heads of cabbage for each of his three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner per day. So that was pretty much all that Farmer Joe ate. He ate six heads of cabbage from his farm. And, um, and then using those assumptions... And using some other assumptions about how well his liver would uh, would soak up and retain the radioactivity, then you could see that we could provide a risk assessment for what uh, Farmer Joe's um, life expectancy might look like. So that's uh, that's enough of a picture into what it looks like to be a radiation risk engineer. And again, this is from personal experience by me. Um, now, uh, based on these sorts of, uh, of assumptions and assessments, then we provide a report and say, all right, you know, we've got this radioactive water that is a byproduct of the oil pumping process. Uh, here's the risks associated with it. We send that to EPA. EPA turns around and publishes that to, to um, the regulators and other interested parties, and then those parties are the ones who decide what levels are contaminated and what procedures are required um, when you're dealing with a scenario like that. So you can see that there is uh, no shortage of, let's call it conservatism, as you're dealing with, uh, in my case, uh, it was radiation engineering. Um, the same sort of thing, and the reason why that story is important is because the same sort of thing applies to radon. Uh, in coming up with the risk assessment for for four picocuries per liter of radon, um, EPA required a similar set of risk assumptions. So for that one, uh, back in the 80s, 
um, in early 90s, the, uh, the, the assumptions, a couple of them, was that the, uh, the affected person was living for 19 hours per day for 72 years in the affected area. And if you stop and think about that, um, 19 hours per day means that they rarely leave the house. They certainly don't have a job. And they are living in the same house that they were born in for the entire length of their life. Um, I personally don't know anybody who has uh, stayed in, in a home for 19 hours per day or for 72 years. But in this case, the, uh, the risk assessment to, assumes both to be the case. Since that time, uh, the risk assessment has actually been made more conservative because now they assume 24 hours per day for 72 years, and they assume that there is a continuous remixture of, of dust uh, into the air throughout this entire time. The reason the dust is important is that the radiation... Um, is going to want to fall uh, on the floor, but if you've got dust and that, and you've got the radiation on the dust, and then the dust is remixed into the air, now you can get that radiation and the dust into somebody's lungs where it's going to cause radiation damage. So um, now the, uh, the the current uh, set of conservative assumptions, at least some of them, these are not all of them, but the current set. Uh, includes an assumption that the affected person is in the room 24 hours a day for 72 years and that it's dusty. Um, my thought is that if you've got that sort of condition going, uh, this individual has more concerns than just radon. In addition, uh, while we're on the subject of of con contribution and and uh, and conservatism, I want to spend a minute talking about the word contribute. So let's say that we've got this individual who's there at uh, for twenty four hours for seventy two years, and it's dusty. Um, what EPA is saying is that if you have a um, uh, radon levels beyond four, then it was a contribution to their death if they, you know, let's say that they die at 80 years old. I mean, obviously, to be in a room for 72 years, you've got to be at least 72 years old, right? So let's say they die at 80. Um, using the assumptions that were done, uh, the if we have a... Uh, if we have radon in the affected room at level than, at more than four, then you've got uh, radon contributing to that person's death. So they might have died of what could be considered to be old age, but if radon is a, is at those sorts of levels, then radon was a contributor and will be added to those statistics to the extent that those statistics are being gathered. Now let's talk for a minute about the word contribute because... You know, I uh, back in when I was doing regular engineering, I was told there are certain words that are called weasel words, and those are words like many, or uh, you know, rather than say I've been an engineer for 17 years, you could say, well, he's been an engineer for many years. That could mean anything. It could mean three years. It could mean 30 years. It doesn't really provide a lot of information, and it's ways for it's a way. It's a word that weasels 
or would-be liars or statisticians to get around um, weak parts of, uh, of speech. So in this case, the word contribute, in my mind, also could uh, be considered to be a weasel word. Now, let me first just describe to you how, they, how EPA uses the word contribute. They basically could say, um, you know, that, that there would be a certain death rate uh, when, when radon causes or contributes to, uh, to whatever the mortality rate is. So let's look at the word contribute, and let's use it in another in another scenario, just just to be just to take the uh, the drama out. Let's assume for a moment that you and I are in a car, and we're um, we're driving down a residential road. Speed limit on that road is twenty five, but we're doing eighty. Um, let's assume for a minute that we're on a cell phone, that the radio is up, that we're fiddling with stations. Let's assume that, um, I don't know which one of us is doing the makeup, but I'm pretty sure it's not me. So we'll say that you are doing your makeup and that there's a ball rolling around on the floor underneath the, uh, the brake and the, uh, and the gas pedal. So all these things are happening at once. 80 miles an hour cell phone, radio, makeup, and the rolling ball. You can imagine that this is a very dangerous scenario going through this residential neighborhood. So at this point in time, uh, you, and let's say that, uh, that, of course, the car crashes and everybody dies. At this point in time, you could say that changing the radio station was a contributing factor in our deaths. Um, that would be true. But it would also be true that there were other considerably more uh, contributory uh, issues like the speed and the cell phone and the makeup and, and even the rolling ball. To me, the radio might be the least of the issues, but it was a co contributor to, uh, to that statistic. Um, EPA does the same sort of thing um, based on my understanding when they're talking about radon. So... This is another one of those factors that, uh, to me, makes radon much less of a real health risk than some other items that deserve a lot more attention, such as carbon monoxide. So, according to EPA's numbers, um, the risk rate for radon, and this may change depending on when you're listening to the podcast, but my numbers are that they estimate that there are, uh, there is a death rate of 2 per year, per 1,000, if you're talking about non-smokers. Um, or you could have a risk rate of 29 per 1,000 if we're talking about people who smoke. And again, you know, the word contribute can be, can be an interesting word because if a person's smoking, there are a thousand reasons why they could be giving themselves lung cancer Radon is perhaps a very small part of the risks that they're taking on um, as, as a habitual smoker. So, um, yeah, 2 per 1,000 for non-smokers and 29 per 1,000 for smokers. You don't necessarily need to memorize those numbers, but it gives you an idea of uh, the kinds of risk rates that, uh, that are out there. Okay, um, about about radon itself, there is um, 
there are some concepts that I want you to understand. First is that homes act like chimneys. So, for example, uh, let's say that you have the bathroom fan on or the fireplace, or maybe we've got a kitchen uh, vent that vents air to the exterior of the home, or you've got anything else that's forcing air out of the house. At this point, with air leaving the home through the chimney flue or whatever it is, maybe your fire, maybe the furnace, maybe the water heater, those, um, all of that is causing air to leave, and that air needs to be replaced. So the house is saying, okay, how do I get replacement air? It is going to draw air from wherever it can. That would include around the doors and windows. Maybe you've got cracks. Maybe you've got a basement that has cracks in the slab, or you've got cracks between the slab and the foundation. Maybe you actually have a home like I lived in not too long ago where you had a crawl space on the same level as the basement. If that's the case, um, radon can come in through the soil and then move um, from the crawl space into the living space where it's going to um, cause a, a built-up radon concentration there in the basement. Radon is heavier than air, so you're going to, if you're going to do a radon test, you're going to want to do it in the lowest living space in the house. Um, now, sometimes, and the reason why that's important is because sometimes you can have, uh, you know, maybe the lowest part of the of the house is going to be perhaps a crawl space. There is no use testing the crawl space for radon because a it's going to have a higher radon concentration than than background, and b it's not living space. So you need to make sure that you're actually testing living space. You want to test in areas that are away from walls so that you can get circulation. You want to try and test about three feet high because, again, this is a conservative thing. We're assuming that the occupant in that lower space is the child and not an adult because the child is, um, is, well, is more susceptible, the child is shorter, and the radon concentration at three feet high is going to be greater than the radon concentration at six feet high. So, again, we're, we're causing higher numbers and higher perceived risks to happen. Uh, that is just one of the things you got to do as you're doing radon tests. So, let's say for a minute that um, you do the test and the number comes back less than four. If so, you're good. You can basically tell the client that, um, and I hate to use the word safe because... Uh, it's less than EPA recommendations. Um, you know, and obviously safe could be changed from four to, to three, or it could be changed to five or ten, who knows. But you can tell them that it's less than EPA action levels, uh, which at the time of this recording is four. Um, if you have a result that comes back four to, let's say, six, there is some, some gray zone there. First off is that most tests, whether you're using a machine or whether you're using a canister, uh, those tests are, again, they're conservative also. They are designed, um, EPA says that the, the best way to do a, a test is a long-term test, as in 90 days. The reality is that nobody does tests that last 90 days, and I'm not even sure how to get a test that lasts 90 days. So if you do the two, three, four-day tests, 
those are also conservative, and they are adjusted so that um, they will over-report rather than under-report the radon concentration at the time. So you're, the reality may be that you have a 2 or 3, and the lab result may be a 4 or 5, just because of the way the test is designed to do the over-reporting. Um, if you've got that sort of a thing going, uh, what you can do is, is try to eliminate the pathways into the home. Because again, radon is a naturally occurring radioactive gas. Um, it originates uh, in the soil, often in granite, but uh, where you have, you'll start with uh, usually uranium and radium, or yeah, uranium and radium, and then you go into, uh, eventually into, as you spit off protons and neutrons, the chemical changes, and eventually those are, um, you know, uranium, for example, is a metal, radium is a metal, but then as you keep spitting off protons and neutrons, eventually you turn into radon, and that's a gas. And so as a gas, like oxygen and nitrogen, it can move into the house, into the air, into your lungs, and then if it decomposes while it's in your lungs, uh, now you've got polonium and beryllium and some of those other um, radioactive metals that are now in your lungs for the rest of your life. Um, that's, that's, so I guess I should mention that radon is, is a lung issue. If somebody has, for example, a face tingling or if they've got stomach ache or a headache or whatever it may be, uh, that's not a radon thing. That's either because they're a psychopath or they've got something else going. It's not radon. All right. Um, geology risk factors. Uh, Actually, before I go there, I need to finish up on the on the ceiling. If you've got that level between four and six, and you have the ability to see where there are some obvious pathways, let's say you've got this big old quarter-inch wide crack that goes 30 feet across the entire length of the basement slab, or maybe you've got a uh, sewer line where you've got an 8-inch diameter hole through which you're running maybe a 4-inch diameter pipe. Or maybe you've got some other sort of a thing going there. Um, if you can stand in living space and see outdoor soil, that is a pathway for radon to get into the home. And so now, as the house, we're, and now you're going to go back to the bathrooms, etc. If you are forcing from via bathroom fans or furnace vents or anything like that, um, if you've got, if you've got something that's forcing air to leave, there's got to be replacement air. And one of those places that the house is going to get replacement air from is, um, is the soil, if it can do so. When that is the case, you're going to have radon come in just as part of the natural process. So as the home inspector, what you can do is you can say, okay, homeowner, um, you could spend money on the big fix, but here's an option you might want to try before you do that. Maybe you actually have them seal up that interface between the sewer line and the uh, the concrete. Or maybe you have them seal the gap between foundation and the basement slab. Or maybe you have them seal around the uh, whatever interface that might be between a crawl space and the basement. 
basically, if you can reduce or eliminate air exchange between outdoor soil and indoor living space, you're going to be reducing the concentration. I had that happen, and I have the personal story where somebody else tested a home. It came up 4.2. Listing agent was one of my clients. She called me up, and she says, look, if we got a problem, we'll take care of it, but I need to make sure that there's really a problem. So I went out there, and I tested, and sure enough, we had about a 4.2. I looked around, and we had a lot of cracks. So I just got... Um, uh, I think three or four tubes of concrete caulk. I used that caulk to seal up cracks that I could see. I retested and we had a 2.7. I fixed that problem for about 10 bucks worth of materials. I charged them 300 and um, I saved them. Uh, at the time, it was about a two or $3,000 fix. At this point in time, uh, the remediation was, uh, or is now, it's called sub-slab mitigation. And uh, usually, depending on where you live, your price tag is going to be between about $1,000 and $2,000. Um, I need to tell you a little bit about sub-slab mitigation. Basically, the idea is that uh, somebody puts a pump below the slab in the house, and that pump is going to pull air from around that area, and it's, it's going to capture that, area, that air, and it's going to exhaust that air to the exterior of the house. That's what sub-slab mitigation is. Um, you'll see a lot of people, if they have radon levels beyond 4.0, uh, that will go ahead and spend. And in my area, it's usually around $1,300. They'll spend the $1,300, and, and uh, then they have the sub-slab mitigation system. Uh, again, for me, sometimes knowledge applies before you go spending money. And I will, uh, I will mention to these guys that, you know, did you know if, for example, about the uh, four hour or the 19 hours per day for 72 year assumption? And, you know, if I, I feel like if I explain to them what, um, what the assumptions are and what the reality is, if they want to get a subslide mitigation system, I certainly have no problem with that. And I know. A, uh, a good national company that I think does a really good job as far as their customer service, and um, I can provide that information to you. So let's talk about the areas where you might want to suspect radon perhaps a little more than other areas. You know, as I was teaching this class once a number of years ago, one of the students listened to what I was saying, and he basically says, so radon follows money. And I thought about that for a minute, and he's right, because radon is going to happen in areas where you have hillsides, um, where you have maybe river bottom type spaces, areas where you have more gravel. And here's why. So let's assume for a moment that, uh, that one million years ago you had a, um, or one billion, pick a number, you have a uranium particle that uh, suddenly gets... Um, magically popped into existence and it's on the mountains and then erosion runs that uh, uranium particle down the mountain into the stream bed. Uh, that uranium particle then then runs into an area where uh, one million years later um, somebody builds a house right on top of it. If the then let's assume for a moment that with that house built right on top of it, that uranium particle decomposes, and now it turns into radi or radon, not radium, radon. 
Um, radon, again, like an, a gas like oxygen and nitrogen, now flows through the pores, the air gaps in the soil, and demon-like, it flows right into the house where it aims itself, and I'm being a little bit facetious here, at um, the homeowner's lungs. Um, this is all going to happen much easier if you have a certain set of conditions. One is that if you have, for example, large rock or um, gravels that are in the, the geology beneath the home, it's easier for the radon particle to, um, the radon gas particle to move through the soil up into the house. Whereas, by contrast, maybe you've got a very tight site, tight type of soil, uh, which might be maybe a silt or a clay, and it doesn't really have uh, air gaps between particles. If that's the case, or especially if you have uh, a high groundwater table and maybe the, uh, the air gaps are filled with water, it's going to be very difficult for the radon to find its way from point A to point B inside the house because it can't move from point A to B. Uh, it's, there's just no pathway. So if you have a material like gravel or sand, maybe you're up on the hillside where you've got more gravelly materials, especially if there's granite in the neighborhood, um, <clears throat> you can certainly have a higher potential risk for radon. By contrast, again, maybe you're, uh, you're down in the valley near the, the lake, you've got clays, and any gaps that may be between the clay particles are filled up with groundwater, uh, you're much less likely to have a, geol uh, or a radon risk there. Okay. Um, more information, you can always go to my website, homemedicusa.com. I could talk all day about radon, and there's, uh, there's a thousand stories I could tell you. But uh, we'll have a place where you can discuss radon issues. And, uh, again, that's homemedicusa.com. Um, it is important to get yourself up to speed on radon so that you can discuss these sort of things. Now, I think the best way to handle issues like radon with your clients, you know, it's not your job to talk them into or out of a radon test. It is your job to look for conditions that might be conducive to radon and regardless, you know, I've, I've uh, disparaged, uh, I think that's a fair statement, um, the perceived risk associated with radon. But if you see a condition where you've got maybe, you know, a lot of cracks in the basement or you've got that crawl space going there or you've got these huge gaps around, um, regardless of whether there is or is not a real safety risk, if you allow your, your buyer to buy a home that has elevated radon concentrations, you have not served them well. Obviously, if you talk them out of doing a radon test and um, five years down the road they become the sellers and another home inspector uh, does a radon test and it comes out you know, 10, 15, 20, um, you end up looking pretty bad. That could become, you know, uh, that could go a long way towards being a career ender for you. So I am not here to suggest that you talk people again. You don't. You're not telling them to do a radon test. You're not telling them to not do a radon test. But you can deliver information and knowledge, 
and it is up to them to decide whether they want to do the test or not. Last thing you want to do is appear that you want to talk them into every every additional test that can be imagined um, because that just makes you look like a car salesman. If so, you know, that is a business model that may provide a little bit more money short term, but it affects your your credibility in the long term. I don't believe it causes better service. Um, you know, rather than than be perceived as just a, a another salesman, serve them. You know, you are expected to be a repository for knowledge, and that is exactly where you should get yourself. Give them everything you've got, and then let, let them make the decision as to whether they want to do a radon test or not. Me, personally, if I don't see a reason to recommend a radon test, I don't bring it up. If I do see a reason, then I'll uh, I'll talk about the reason why. And in some, time, some cases, I'll say, look, you know, a radon test is going to be this many dollars, Sealing that crack is going to be this many dollars, and usually option B is a lot less. Um, so you can uh, turn yourself into a hero that way. Uh, they understand that you're not just out there to to squeeze the last two nickels out of out of the client, and then they understand that you are somebody that can be trusted and referred. That is the kind of business model for guys that I'm looking for uh, that I can refer. So, again, thank you for being on board. It's a pleasure having you. Go out there. Make me proud.